Today we have a special speaker, a special person, uh, someone who I, who is a felder, fellow elder who is a, a felder, that's what we call him. Tennessee, we abbreviate everything. But, you know, he does, he's a man of few words, but when he speaks, we listen, right? And uh, we're always blessed to have him speak, and uh, it's all yours, Kevin. Thank you, Felder Phil. <laughs> Who's, whose phone is this, Felder Phil? Is this yours? Roddy, is this yours? <laughs> Do you want to claim it? <laughs> Thank you. My mom might call me. Who knows? Who knows? Thank you. Good morning. All right. Uh, will you stand with me just a moment? Usually we stand up and read a passage from Scripture. Um, but today I'm actually going to save the Scripture for us to read together to the end. But I thought it would be good for you to stand up anyway. Maybe go ahead and do a little stretching, you know, that kind of thing. So get the kinks out. And then, then you can sit down, and hopefully the sermon won't seem so long. <laughs> All right, you may be seated. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you will um, send your spirit to uh, breathe life into your word today. In Christ's name. Yeah. All right. Um, the uh, text that we will be reading a little bit is Psalm 51. Uh, we're, don't put it up just yet. William, I'll tell you when to put it up, but uh, uh, that's, that's the text that we're going to read. It, it is a psalm. It's a song. It's one that was written by David. We know that because it says so right at the beginning, so it, it, it introduces itself, sort of. But to understand Psalm 51, usually what we do is we read the Scripture, and then whoever's standing in the pulpit will go ahead and exegete from the Scripture. You know, they'll go ahead and go through maybe verse by verse, or go through and give you some insight, some backstory, some cross-references and things like that. Uh, so that the scripture will be maybe more meaningful and hopefully will stay with you and become you know alive in your hearts. And uh, this is one, though, that uh, we're going to do all the exegesis and the cross-referencing and the backstory first, and then we'll go, we'll go to the scripture. Uh, some of you know Psalm 51 is, is a scripture or a psalm that was written by David at a very specific time in his life. Um, it's, uh, it involves the incident with Bathsheba, most of you know that. That's probably the second most famous story of David, or, or maybe. Um, and it's, it's in sort of the middle of his life. It's sort of when he's, he's really rising to power now. He's solidifying his kingdom. Uh, it's, it's well after the ordeal with Goliath, uh, and it's well before uh, the ordeal with his sons who rebel against him. Um, so this is, this is, this is in, that, in that middle section there. Um, and to understand the verses from the psalm, you really have to know the story itself. And though you've probably heard it, we're going to go through it again because I think there are some things in here that I, I as I read through it, some new things that I learned as I read and, and pondered and prayed and you know, studied about it. And so I want to share some of that stuff with you if that's okay. All right, I want to start right off by kind of reading the story. This is from Second Samuel. Uh, the 11th chapter is where it starts, right from the first verse. And I'll, I'll read a little bit, and then I'll talk a little bit. So, It happened in the spring of the year 
at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That needs a little context. Um, all right, spring of the year, that's a good time to do battle. Why? Well, in the spring, the crops are out. They're kind of doing their own thing growing. Doesn't require a lot of manpower at that time. Also, the winter rains are over with. It's, it's nasty. I mean, war is hell all the time, right? But it's really worse when you're having to slog through the mud. So uh, in the spring, the weather's better. So, you know, that's, that's the time to go to war. Um, also, uh, it says that with the Ammonites. Why the Ammonites? Well, it's an interesting story there. The Ammonites, who are the Ammonites, first of all? Well, if you go back, there's, it tells you. The Ammonites are the descendants of Ben-Ami. Not Bon-Ami. That's the scrubbing powder that your grandma used to clean the tub with. Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami was, Ben-Ami was the son of Lot. And so we know a little bit now where, where that comes from. Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and when they split apart, and, and, and Lot had to run from Sodom, Ben-Ami was a result of that. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, and the Ammonites were this group of people that grew up. They were pagans, but they're like cousins of the Israelites, you know, distantly, but they're cousins of the Israelites. And when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and they're claiming the land that God promised them, the Ammonites didn't help them. And so there was a little resentment about that. The Ammonites, just, they, didn't, they didn't help them out, you know. And, but God told the Israelites, don't disturb the Ammonites. Just don't, you know, when you go in to take your land, I'm not giving you that land. Theirs, leave them alone, okay? So they had this sort of uncomfortable peace between Israelites and Ammonites. And there was a king that the Ammonites had. This is actually just from the chapter right before, from chapter 10. There was a king um, named Nahash who actually did help David out some. David, he was kind to David, and David appreciated it. When Nahash died and his son came to power, Hanun, uh, David said, you know, let's send some con- condolences to Hanun because his father was good to me. And, and you know, So he sent a contingency of people over to, you know, say, sorry about your dad, you know, maybe some flowers, maybe some other, you know, nice gifts, those kinds of things, things you do when, when someone dies. Um, but Hanun's princes, it says, his advisors said, you don't really think that David sent these people here because he's sorry that your dad died. He sent them here to spy on us so that they can come take us over. So Hanun listened to his princes, and he took... Now, I've got to read this because this, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm reading... I'm just going to read it for David is rather not, has rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it. And Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, and cut off their garments in the middle at about the level of the buttocks, it says. That's... Right here, I'm reading it. And then sent them away. Okay, so they got, you know, the beard was kind of a status thing. It was, it was something that men were proud of. They, wore, they grew a beard when they were men, you know. So he shaved off half the beards, shaved off half their, or cut off half their garments so that their behinds were showing and sent them on the run. 
perhaps that's where the word embarrassed comes from. I don't know. They were. They were embarrassed. So, David is responding to this. And it says that he had a battle. He led, his men, he, led, he led Israel into battle against these. They went and got the Assyrians, or the Syrians, excuse me, the Syrians to help them out. The, the Ammonites did. They got the Syrians to help them out. And they were getting ready. I mean, he, he knew this action against the uh, uh, contingency that David sent. He knew that that was going to... St- you know, that was going to stoke a war. So he got the Syrians to help him out. David took his armies. They went to battle, and as it turned out, with, you know, under David's banner, the, the Syrians fled away, and then the Ammonites, you know, were left kind of to themselves. And this, this story here, where David sent out Joab and his servants, it's kind of to finish up this thing. It's kind of to finish up this thing. In the spring of the year, David sent him out. But David himself didn't go. That's a, that's a critical line. David remained at Jerusalem. It was David's job, his commission by God, to protect and solidify the kingdom of Israel. And so David should have been with his men. But he, instead of going with them, he stayed behind and he sent them to do his job. Okay? So that's important. That's context. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of, his, of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay. So... Maybe, we don't know. David's restless. It's nighttime. He's up pacing around on his roof. He sees something that he ought not see. I'm not going to judge Bathsheba. I don't know whether it was normal for women to bathe on the roof at night in that time. So I don't know about that. that's, that's, That's not for me to judge here. But we're going to focus on David and his action. He sees, he notices, but then he asks about. So... It's not just a matter of seeing, ah, uh, uh, not see that, go away, leave it behind, but he pursues it. Who is that? Who, by the way, by the way, I'm just curious, who is that woman that lives over there on, in that house? And they, and they say, they tell him it's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the daughter of Eliam. Now, these aren't nobodies. Uriah and Eliam both, this woman's husband and this woman's father, are some of that contingency, or some of those mighty men, the warriors who are down there cleaning up with the Ammonites. They're elite soldiers. So David knows who they are. These are, you know, she's from a good family. David goes on to uh, say, well, send her over here to come see me. Yeah, send her to come see me. And Bathsheba comes, and... It says that she went into David's, and he lay with her. Okay, this is PG, by the way. I don't know if you guys you need to make any arrangements. That, uh, this is this is a PG story, I suppose. Now, again, it doesn't say that she screamed. It doesn't say that she refused. Obviously, she's going to come when the king summons. You, you would expect that. 
Uh, and it doesn't say that she told anyone. In fact, it's pretty certain that she didn't tell anyone after the act, act had happened. So, again, uh, I don't know enough details to really talk about that, but we're looking at David's life now. So she goes back, but she does say, she does send David a message because the result of the action was that she got pregnant. And her husband's off at war. Interesting, the scripture also makes mention, <laughs> he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity. Okay, that's, that's curious to me in a couple of ways. One way is that it was important enough to David that she was at the right time of month and not the wrong time of month, which was, which was you know, forbidden by the law. <laughs> but... but but not to actually not lay with someone else's wife. You know, that's, that's a curious thing. But I think, the, I think the detail is in there to let us know that she wasn't pregnant when she came. You know, that's, that's, that detail matters. All right, so David says, okay, I've got, I do have an issue, you know, because that is a sin that is punishable by death. Both the adulterer and the adulteress should die according to the law from that. All right, so David concocts a plan to try to cover this up. He, he sends a message to Joab, send, send Uriah the Hittite to come see me. And he, Uriah comes in to see him, and he just basically says, tell me how the war is going, Uriah. You know, that's, that's what I sent for you for. You know, I just want you to you know, catch me up to speed on how the war is going. And so Uriah tells him, you know, oh, your men are, are fighting bravely. We're, we're you know, we're... They're, um, they're making you proud, you know, and, and uh, I would like to get back to them. And he says, no, no, you need to stay here. Go, go, go to your wife. You know, go home. Spend the night in your home. Go to your wife. But Uriah doesn't because he can't see himself enjoying the pleasures of home while the other men, the unit that he serves with, are off fighting in battle. And so he's a good patriot, good soldier. And what's interesting what makes it even more interesting and more impressive in a way is he's not even a Jew. You know, he's not even an Israelite. Sorry, an Israelite. Uh, by, at least not by birth. He's a Hittite. That's what it says. That's why they call him Uriah the Hittite. And, but he has joined himself to David and joined himself to the Israelite nation, to Israel. So he stays with the rest of David's guards just outside David's. That's where he sleeps on the stoop, basically, you know, guarding, guarding the king's house. And so David's, David's like, oh, okay, so what am I going to do here? He says, send him back in. And so he says, eat with me, drink with me. And he has him nick dinner, and he feeds him food, and he, lots of wine. And, of course, the king's insistent, Uriah drinks and gets pretty sloshed, you know. And then David says, go on, go on home, hoping that, you know, his, his uh, inhibitions and, and his priorities and all will be changed in the, under the influence of alcohol. But, but still, he goes back out, sleeps with the other, the other soldiers on the stoop, you know, guarding David's house. He just won't. He just won't play. He won't play the game. So David then says, "Okay, Uriah, you've got you got to go back. Go back." And that's what Uriah wants. He wants to go back, join his unit. And he says, "Here, I'm going to give you some orders, Uriah. Take them back to Joab, the captain. And uh, you know, they're sealed orders, sealed by the king. Take them." He has no concerns that Uriah is going to look at them because Uriah is a faithful, dedicated soldier. You know. He's going to deliver them to Joab just as he was ordered to do. The orders were the orders of Uriah's destruction. The, he, David has instructed, instructed Joab to 
on the next time, next opportunity to put Uriah in the front line to charge against the capital, this old big walled city, capital city. And when the battle starts, when they're up there, up under the walls, don't send reinforcements. Have everybody fall back except for, you know, that first unit that Uriah is with. Of course, that's not good military tactics, <laughs> you know. That's in harm's way. From, from the wall, things can be thrown down on top of the soldiers who are there. Arrows can be shot easily. You know, they're in range, and especially without cover from, from the rest of the support. Joab follows orders, and the plan works like it was supposed to work. Uriah is killed. And not only Uriah, but the whole, you know, several of the men that were up there with him. So you have several people to die. Then that makes Bathsheba a widow. And no one knows, other than David and Bathsheba, what has gone on. And maybe now Joab getting some kind of inkling, you know. After, it says, after her mourning, then David takes her to wife. What a great guy. You know, she's a widow. She's about to have a baby, but the baby's not going to have a father. So this great king actually takes her into his household, gives her his name and, you know, willing to raise the child. What a great king. What a good guy, right? So David feeling pretty good about himself, I suppose. But he thinks he's got away with it. It seems that he thinks that. God, of course, knows. God takes the prophet Nathan, who David has already interacted with. They, you know, Nathan is uh, friendly to David. He's had prophecies in the past that were in David's favor. And so David likes, David likes Nathan because he thinks Nathan likes him. Nathan comes in to tell David this story, this interesting story. It's about... There's a wealthy man and a, and a poor man. And the poor man has one ewe lamb, one female lamb. And he had raised that lamb with his children. And it was like a pet. It was, it was like one of his children. They loved it. It was part of the household. The wealthy man had flocks and flocks, of course. And he had a, a visitor to come visit. And it was customary and hospitable to lay out good food for your visitors, but instead of taking from his own flocks, he went over and took the special lamb from the poor guy, slaughtered it to feed to his guest. Nathan tells this story, and David is enraged. He, he says, by, by, how does he say it? The name of, in the name of God, that man shall die. Now, Stealing someone's lamb and slaughtering it even, that is not a, death pen, not a death penalty thing. It's not a capital offense. But David is so enraged about this because of the man's callousness and his greed and what, whatever that he said, this man shall die and not only shall he die, but the poor guy shall be re recompensed fourfold for his loss, which is actually exactly what the law says. The law says if you, know, if you, if you kill someone else's lamb or, or take it, or whatever, then you shall make restitution fourfold. That's exactly, that's exactly according to the law. The death penalty, though, that's a little bit above, but that's, David said that. And then, as soon as David said that, Nathan said, you are that man. And he went ahead to tell him 
that he knew exactly, God had revealed to him exactly what he'd done. And this is, this is powerful. This is the context in which David wrote the psalm, Psalm 51. Now, David's response is interesting, and I can't, I don't know, it seems wrong to say I'm thankful that David did this because, you know, he did, he did it was a horrible sin. I mean, these are like the worst things. Adultery, murder times, you know, several, lying. I mean, this is awful. But because David did this, we have this example and we have this psalm. And so this is an example of where God redeems what we intend for evil. So Nathan basically tells what God's judgment is going to be on, on, on David. He said, there will be blood in your household. Um, your wives, you did this in secret, but your wives will be slept with by another man in public. And the child will die. This child is going to die. Now, David, David's response is pretty short. He, he, he writes the, the psalm later, I suppose. But his response is pretty short. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I like this because he says, he doesn't say, we have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, you know, I goofed up. I made a mistake. I slipped up. I fell short of what I should have been. It wasn't that. It was, I have sinned against the Lord. And because of David's remorse and repentance, there's never another inkling about David ever again sleeping with another man's wife. Because of David's repentance, the Lord has mercy on him. That was a capital offense, but God says, I shall not require your life of you through, through Nathan. He says that. And because God pronounced it, they, they let David got to live. But the consequences still happened. Um, some of you may, I, a few, some time ago, I, we talked about the uh, rebellion of Absalom and all that. And, and as it turns out, David lost not only this child, he lost Amnon and Absalom and trying to, Ad, Adonijah, I believe it was. Four sons for the one. Just like he pronounced in his own judgment. Just like the law says. So, this, this kind of brings me to, um, uh, there, there are analogies that are used in churches very often when, when, we, when they try to help people to understand what our position before God is. And depending on what church you go to will probably determine what analogy you're most likely to hear or some version of it. In the Western church, in Catholic church, in most Protestant churches, very often what you hear is the analogy of a man who's guilty of a, of a, of a crime standing before a righteous judge. And the man 
I mean, it's, there's, there's, the evidence is indisputable. The man's guilty. The crime is a capital crime. And he's standing before the righteous judge. And all, all he can do is say, I'm guilty. And I throw myself on the mercy of the court. And the righteous judge has to pay the penalty. The penalty has to be paid. Because otherwise, if he just said, you know, everybody messes up. It's okay. Don't worry about it. That's not a righteous judge. If he says, you know, you're, you were born that way. You couldn't help it. That's not, that's not righteousness. What the righteous judge says is, yes, the penalty for that, you are guilty. And the penalty for that is, in fact, death. Death has to occur. Blood must be paid. But the court is merciful. Therefore, I will pay for you. That's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. It emphasizes our responsibility before God. It emphasizes the place that we are. Now, the Eastern Church, interestingly, the Orthodox Church, they have a different emphasis, but it's still a good analogy that they present. Their analogy is more like a man who has an inherited deadly disease, and nothing that he can do is going to cure himself of this deadly disease. And he goes to the only doctor in the world, a good physician, that can cure him. And he says, what can you do? And the physician says, there is only one cure. It is a blood transfusion from me to you. It's going to take all of it from me. And so I have to die, but I am willing to do it so that you can be cured. And so that helps to kind of emphasize, you know, the fact that we are fallen people, that we are kind of born this way. So this, this whole um, doctrine of the fall, it explains why we are the way we are, but it doesn't excuse why we are the way we are. It doesn't excuse what we do. Um, I'm, I'm going to address one quick thing that sometimes people get hung up on. Why did the baby have to die? Well, well other than God pronounced it so, but I want to give you a couple of possible explanations. First of all, it was, it was a consequence. Sin has consequences. And even though we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, the consequences still happen. And there's still a mess left behind. And so that's a consequence of the sin. Also, the stigma that would have followed that child as you know, the result of David's sin, that could not have been a happy life. Uh, and we know how some of David's other sons turned out. So, I mean, that, you know, that was not a good household to grow up in. We know that, too, from history. And then finally, it's pretty clear that God took that child to himself. And if we ever, you know, if, that's one of the big questions. Do babies go to heaven if they don't have time to, you know, if they don't, how do, do we know? Well, David's uh, response when he, when he finds out that the child is, you know, God pronounces that the child's going to die. David fasts, he, he's, he covers himself in ashes, he prostrates himself on the floor, he won't eat, he, he's, he won't wash, he's, he's, he's miserable, and he's 
pleading before God, please don't let the child die. He does that for a week. And they're all worried about him. You know, his people are, he's not eating, he's not even taking a bath, he's not doing, he's just, he's just there. That's all he's doing is crying and praying. That's all he's doing. And they're worried about him. And then when the child does die after a week, they're like, who's going to tell him? Are you going to tell him? I'm not going to tell him. You tell him. And David sees them talking among themselves, and he says, has the child died? And they said, yes, sire, he's died. He gets up, he washes himself, puts on some clothes, and he goes and eats. This confuses them. Why? Why, David? While the child was still alive, you were, you were, you know, beating yourself up. You were on the floor. You wouldn't wash. You wouldn't eat. But now that he's dead, now you eat. Now you're cleaning yourself up. He says, well, while the child was still alive, who knows that the God might not relent and change his mind. But now that the child is gone, he can't come back to me, but I will go to him. So, you see David's faith there. You know, he's, he's, he's completely thrown the judgment in God's hands where it belongs, and he's willing to abide by that. Um, Sean, um, let's see, Josh McDowell. Some of you know Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and lots and lots and lots of other books. He's, he's had a ministry that's gone on for like 40 years or something, maybe longer. He's got a son named Sean McDowell, who's followed something in his father's footsteps. He's, he also has ministry, an apologetics ministry, to, to encourage Christians and to help other people to, to find Christ. And one of the things that he deals with a lot is that there's, there's kind of a rash of deconstruction in the church. There's a lot of people who grew up believing, but once they get grown or once they have something happen, they've left. And a lot of them are kind of high-profile folks, you know, people in, in Christian bands and people who themselves had ministries and then things like that. And so he's, he's actually engaged with a lot of these people. And one of the things that he has found, according, according to his interviews with these folks, is that these folks that have had this type of deconstruction, have had this loss of faith, he says to a man, to a person, he'll ask him, you know, tell me how, how it is that you came to Christ to begin with. Most of them it was, you know, I was in a service, a, in a church service, or I was listening to the song or whatever, and I, I kind of felt, I felt God, you know, moving in my heart, and, and I... And I went forward and, and made, a, you know, made a, a commitment then, you know, that type of thing. But not one of them so far has said, I was faced with my own sinfulness. And I was convicted before God. And I knew that I had no hope outside of him. That, that type of testimony seems to be missing and the, the ones that lose their faith. And I can, some of you have heard it before, but I'll share my, my own testimony. I was, I was eight years old. I was, I was a young kid. I wasn't a particularly bad kid. I don't think I was a little headstrong, you know, I think. Um, and I, I don't remember any particular event that, that was a catalyst for this. But for some reason, in my own home, at eight years old, I was convicted of my own sinfulness. It was like, you know, I don't always tell the truth. 
I don't always obey my parents the way that I'm supposed to. I like to make excuses. And all these things, they just kept coming to me like, what a terrible person I am. I just, at eight years old, I was, you know, I just knew that I had no hope. And I was, I was just like David almost. I was bereft. I was laying on the floor. I was crying. My mom, fortunately, recognized what was going on. She got enough out of me to figure it out. When my dad came home, he explained the gospel to me. And by golly, that was good news to me. And I, I remember, now, my daughter, when she came to Christ, hers was a little less emotional, it seemed like. She didn't do the crying and stuff that I did. I was concerned about that, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure you're doing this right, you know. But what I do remember, the thing that really sticks with me is I got to baptize her. That was cool. I got to baptize her. And we, she came up out of the water, and as we walked out, she said, I just feel so clean. And I remember that feeling myself. And God still deals with me that way sometimes. You know, it says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And, you know, people deal with the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't claim to have the whole answer to what that means exactly, but at least this. If the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and you do not face up to it, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I believe. If you're not willing to own your sin, you can't do enough good works to cover up your sin. You know, if you're a good doctor, you can't save enough people to cover up your sin. If you're a good lawyer, you can't get enough innocent people out of jail or put enough bad people in jail to cover up your sin. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. You're still sinful. The, the blood price has to be paid. Fortunately, the good physician, the righteous judge, has paid it. So uh, now, William, if you would, put Psalm 51. So I will ask you now to stand uh, as we look at Psalm 51. Now, I'm going to point out just a couple of verses that might be, might cause a little ambiguity as we go through it. So I want to address them beforehand. Um, let's see. Okay, verse 4. I'm going to call your attention to that. Against you and you only have I sinned. Well, that's interesting. And people look at that and they go, ooh, I know the story of David now. And uh, it seemed like he sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah, sinned against Joab, sinned against the whole nation pretty much. So what does it mean by that? And the understanding is that the sin against God trumps all others. You know, yes, he wronged those people. Yes, there were terrible consequences. But it was the sin against God that trumps all others, okay? So that's, that's an issue um, that we can not worry about, hopefully. Um, let's see. And this, by the way, is New King James Version. If you want to turn to it in your own Bible or own, on your own devices, that's fine. This is the version I'm going to be reading from when I read it. Um, William down to... Oh, verse 5, next, verse, next page. Yeah, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin 
And in sin, my mother conceived me. That's the whole I was born this way thing, you know. But he's not making it as an excuse. He was just saying, this is, you know, this is, this is how I came, this is how I came down and explains why I am the way I am, but it doesn't excuse it, okay? And then uh, down to verse 8, it says, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Well, there's nothing in the story about David getting his bones broken. But this is, this is sort of a, a, a speech pattern or a, um, something that's used often in poetry of the time. Bones are associated with great pain. Basically, when bones break, that's painful. And he's just re-talk- he's talking about the figurative broken bones, that the, pains, the pain that he went through. And then when we read it, I guess what I'll have us do is we'll stop at verse 17. But I want you to look at verse 18 and 19. Um, William, are you there? Good, thank you. Um, because everything down to verse 17, I think, can apply to every one of us. You know... Your sin may not be David's sin. Hopefully you've never caused anybody to die, hopefully. Hopefully you haven't committed adultery, hopefully. Hopefully not even in your heart. I'd say that's, that's, I'm a little less hopeful about that one. But regardless of whether any of these David's sins are your sins, you've got your own. And you know what they are. God knows what they are. They're like, and the ones that, that need to be dealt with are probably the ones that you're telling yourself is no big deal. You know, the ones that you say, well, everybody does it. Not that big a deal. Nobody knows about it, so it doesn't matter. That one, that may be the one that you need to be, you know, putting before God right now. So anyway, when we, when we well, verse 18 and 19, that's more specific to the time. He's talking about God and his blessing on Jerusalem, and his blessing on David's kingdom, and that kind of thing. And it kind of applies to us, but it's a little less personal. So we're going to stop at verse 17. So starting with Psalm, the, the verse 1, after the little introduction about this, is this, you know, it tells us, you know, the context. Uh, starting with verse 1, I'm going to read out loud, and I ask each of you, if you can, if you will, to pray this psalm with me, even if you don't say it. If you, if you want to say it out loud, you're welcome to do that too. But at least pray the psalm with me if you can. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Let these ancient words work in your heart today. Amen. Thank you. If um, you at home or any of you here, if this is the first time that you've ever faced your sinfulness before God, tell somebody about it. Share that with somebody because it will, it will lift their hearts and we can all rejoice with you. If you're dealing with something that you just haven't dealt with before, that may just be, need to be before, between you and God. But if, it's some, if there's someone that you've hurt in some way or someone you need to ask forgiveness of or someone that you need to forgive, then you might be able to share that joy with others. Thank you.